0: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight. That magical time between dusk and dawn where anything can happen, anything can be discussed, anything can be controversial, and anything can be part of a trend curve of what's going to happen in the next few days or weeks or months. I mean, have you noticed, a la Art Bell... That this definitely is what he used to call the quickening. Everything is happening at warp speed, including projects to develop vaccines on a very, 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 very fast track. Warp speed. Gosh, I wonder where that came from. Anyway, this morning is going to be a remarkable, remarkable show. Because we're going to announce a major discovery from Perseverance. With evidence, a variety of evidence, independent evidence, independent instrumental evidence, because we have more than one data set kind of converging on the same solution. And it should turn a lot of heads. It should go viral. It should be running around the world. It should provoke an awful lot of questions of our friendly local neighborhood space agency, namely NASA. I mean, have you noticed that NASA is still broken? There are no press conferences on Perseverance. Remember, a $2.7 billion mission, which is kind of sunk like a rock thrown into the middle of the Atlantic Ocean without leaving a ripple. There's no mainstream mention. There's no pundits talking about it. There's no chatter in, uh, in uh, you know, mainstream space there are of course uh various groups like reddit and some other specialty sites that are having whole conversations and there are the specialty specialty groups like unmanned uh, uh spacecraft.com and and some others the planetary society who are of course having their you know party kind of behind the scenes because they know everybody and they're getting stuff leaked and all that but for the Mainstream of the world, the Perseverance rover went to Mars, landed, and disappeared. And NASA television is still broken. As I've been saying endlessly now for weeks and weeks, I think it's three weeks now, it's been broken. And I'm on a major satellite cable television service, um, Comcast, which serves tens of millions of people, you'd think that someone out there other than me would kind of complain, would say, why is the schedule still totally bollocks up? I mean, if I had not been taping 24-7 and then doing periodic reviews at 300 times framing rate and then ditching the old programs that are not what I'm looking for, I would have no idea that in the middle of the night last night, at about um, 11.30 p.m. my time, mountain time, here in the land of enchantment, uh, NASA conducted a mini-manned space flight. One of the Russian astronauts, cosmonauts, took the Soyuz attached to one of the modules of the International Space Station for a spin. Because in about a month, they're going to be joined by another uh, Soyuz vehicle, MS-18. So they've got MS-17, the previous spacecraft docked, and they had to move it from where it was docked to another docking port about 90 degrees around the station. And they had stunning video. You know, I was kind of going through the old NASA stuff that I'm taping and discarding everything that doesn't fit into the perseverance category, and I happen to see these amazing images. I mean, I never get tired of live or taped video coming down from the space station because we live on a beautiful, beautiful planet. And the views of the Soyuz against the clouds of the South Pacific, I mean, it was just, it was lyrical. And only someone who was obsessively compulsively taping Everything to see when they're going to fix this. What have you even found it? Because there's no schedule. You can't log on to a certain time and say they're going to run a certain thing because they're putting out a schedule on NASA television that bears no resemblance to how it's being aired over at least one of the major cable and satellite outlets serving, as I said, tens of millions of customers. How can you ignore your customers that way? And how come nobody is complaining? Anyway, the mysteries of NASA are confounded because this week, President Biden uh, made known his pick for the new administrator of NASA. It's someone who, it says in the article that I have linked as number one in my items and Radio with Pictures tonight – and for all you new people, let me tell you how to get there, because we have radio with images, with video, with, oh, some interesting things tonight we're going to get into. So what you want to do is you want to log on to the other side of midnight.com. That's where everything begins. That's our homepage. Click on tonight's banner, which says, very provocatively, Farmers in the Sky, How Not to Die on a Dying Red Planet with our guest, Ron Gerbrand. This is a little project that Ron's been working on for, I don't know how long. It's, it's it's years. It's it's many, many, many years. We've had conversations going back many years as to this model, this idea. And tonight we're going to present some extraordinary historic data confirming Ron's model. And who knows where it's going to go from, from here. Anyway, click on that banner, Farmers in the Sky, for Saturday, March 20th, I believe we are officially in spring tonight, I think that occurred somewhere in the wee hours of the morning, so um, welcome to spring in the Northern Hemisphere and planet Earth, all of you listening in the Northern Hemisphere, <clears throat> for you guys in the Southern Hemisphere, it's going to get chilly, so bundle up, you know, anyway, um, so you click on that banner, that will take you to the guest page. And then right under the guest page, it says fast links to items. Richard, Ron, Andrew, because Andrew Curry is going to join us in the third hour for very interesting reasons, as you will see. Anyway, click on that set of fast links that will take you to my items. Item number one: NASA veterans baffled by Biden pick of Bill Nelson to lead space agency. And there's really It's kind of like there's panic in River City. You know, people like uh, John Logsdon, who was at the American University, and other NASA experts and pundits and all that are scratching their heads and saying, why would Biden pick Nelson? I mean, other than the fact that Senator Bill Nelson, a Democratic senator from Florida, is actually an astronaut as well. He flew on the Columbia one mission before the Columbia died and there are people in the space community who actually blame him for the astronaut who he took the place of who then was bumped to the next mission and who died on columbia in the following flight which of course is incredibly unfair because nasa has mixed and matched crews going all the way back to the infamous apollo 13 remember one of the astronauts got the measles and the new guy, uh, Jack Schweigert, had to take over and did a brilliant job. But uh, the old guy, uh, I think his name was Mattingly, he served out that mission in mission control and helped bring them home. And the measles that he was supposed to have been infected with, he never got. So NASA has been substituting crews for decades. So I think it's an incredibly unfair uh, you know, slap against Nelson he had no idea what was going to happen on the next mission nobody did et cetera et cetera so but they're trying to find some flaw and a lack of understanding as to why the president would pick a politician a senator who of course is not a scientist um to head nasa right now now his deputy administrator is a scientist she's an astronaut She's a woman. I mean, everybody's been saying things like, well, he's been staffing his cabinet with all kinds of diversity, you know, black people and female people and <clears throat> Hispanic people, et cetera, et cetera. And they're wondering why he didn't, you know, go for diversity, an interesting term, diversity, uh, for the head of the space agency. And tonight I'm going to cut through all this nonsense because, of course, I think this is a perfect choice. Why? Because if we're right about what we found on Mars, and we are, the evidence is overwhelming. There were a series of ancient civilizations, and Perseverance has landed in the midst of an extraordinary uh, cacophony of ruins, artifacts, buildings, and glass. We're going to get to the glass part shortly then with the Chinese still orbiting upstairs and the Arabs orbiting upstairs and the Russians involved with the Israelis by way of the Abraham Accords Agreement with the Arabs, with the United Arab Emirates, and so thereby metonymy, they're upstairs. And the whole world is represented by what's either orbiting Mars tonight or sitting on the surface in the form of perseverance. With that, As a prelude to what could and probably will be happening next, I know exactly what Biden is thinking. He wants someone who he's known for 20, 30, 40 years in the Senate, someone who he is absolutely certain of his loyalty, his reliability, his competence, and his willingness to follow the lead of the president. Why? Because NASA's suddenly in in weeks or maybe months at the outset is going to become the center of the storm. And you want someone in that leadership position that you can count on in the dark, blindfolded when the other guy has a gun. And that is Bill Nelson. So this is overwhelmingly interesting circumstantial evidence that the decks are being prepared for the biggest announcement in the modern history of humanity. And so I see absolutely in this pick Biden going for loyalty and competence and someone who can follow his lead when the going gets very, very weird and rough and bizarre, and all kinds of things are going to fall out of the woodwork. So if anybody out there is wondering, NASA veterans, why the president picked Senator Nelson, it's because the you-know-what is about to hit the rotating kitchen appliance. Moving on, this week was a very interesting week in terms of what could happen next, because with the With the passing of the torch from the Trump administration to the Biden administration, there have been lots of questions about what's going to happen to Artemis. The Artemis project, the project that Trump announced to put humans back on the moon, Americans back on the moon, including the first woman astronaut, by 2024. And everyone's been looking, you know, for tea leaves and straws in the wind and all those you know, kind of signs of what might happen politically in Washington. Well, as part of that, uh, shall we say, trend curve, NASA had an extremely important success this week. They had an eight-minute hot fire test of the first core stage of the space launch system, which will be the rocket that sends the Orion spacecraft on an orbit, maybe at the end of this year, between October and December, we could have an unmanned circumlunar mission, kind of like maybe around Christmas, like Apollo 8, when I got tapped by Cronkite and company to go and help them go to the moon. That was exactly what the producer called me said. He said, Mr. Hoagland, we're calling from CBS News. My my name is um, Frank Manitsis. I'm a producer with CBS News Special Events. We'd like to have you come and help us go to the moon. I swear that's exactly what he said. How could I turn it down? And the rest, as they say, is history. So history is about to repeat, except this time on the full-up, most powerful rocket ever built, surpassing even in its ultimate incarnation, the fable of Saturn V. The core stage with those four RL-25 engines recycled from the space shuttle program um, fired like a champ for twice as long as they had planned the test. They only needed four minutes of data. They got eight minutes, meaning all the bolts held, all the wires remained connected, the vibration in the frame didn't turn anything off. And with a minor refurbishment, they will now ship this core stage to the Cape by means of the barge. And it will be stacked alongside the solid rocket boosters that will help Orion get into orbit and then fly into an orbit around the moon, circling. I don't remember how many times they're going to do it, but it could be in December. It could be around Christmas time, which would be an interesting historical echo of my first mission with CBS News on Apollo 8 to the moon. Who says history does not rhyme? Item number three. In this vein that we're going to be talking tonight about lost civilizations, there's a guy in France. His name is, if I can bring it up here, um, his name is, okay, come on, come on, come on, there we are. He's a French diver named Henry Cossier, who back in uh, 91 stumbled upon the world's only prehistoric cave paintings that can be reached only. Under, off Marseille, which when he initially reported this, some Parisian experts laughed off his claims of caveman Penguin Art as province hyper- hyperbole. Well, it turns out the claims were entirely true, and they have now built on land at the Marseille Museum what has been called an underwater Lesou, which is that famous cave above water where all those incredible cave paintings The reason this is relevant tonight is because the dating, the radiocarbon dating of this extraordinary find was about between 30,000 years ago in an early period and then about 19,500 years ago. Isn't that interesting? Anyway. That is relevant to what we're going to talk about tonight because we're talking about ancient civilizations on Mars, and the date, as you're going to see, based on the evidence that we've unearthed – is that a term? Unmarsed? – in Jezero Crater. It kind of fits that time frame, and we'll get into long discussions, I'm sure, and maybe even some controversial discussions with my guest, Ron, tonight about the timing. Item number four, um, scientists, and the story in number four is very intriguing. They're basically saying that they want to send an ark, a kind of a Noah's ark, which would include seeds and spores and DNA and egg samples from something like 6.7 million species sent to the moon. And encased in an arc as a kind of, as they're quoting it, a global insurance policy, a lunar gene bank. And they would literally be kept in this arc that's going to be refrigerated, according to the plan, at cryogenic temperatures in a facility below the lunar surface um, by solar panels and solar energy. And obviously, it would have to have batteries, and I'm I'm, I'm looking at this not so much in terms of its practicality, but in terms of its timing. I mean, the only time that people talk about preserving things for the future is if they somehow think the future is in peril. Does someone know something that the rest of us don't know? I mean, there's been a kind of a spate of these stories relatively recently. Anyway, um, what I'm going to do For future shows, I'm going to kind of track down some of the guys behind this, and I'm going to see if we can get somebody on the air to talk about the lunar arc, because who knows? It may, in fact, be necessary at some point to avail ourselves of all of this. Okay, this next story is not really a story. It's more like this. This is the sound of the Perseverance rover on the surface of Mars in Sol 16 just a few days ago. Now it's driving. The background hum is the electronics. All those interesting noises are rocks that the wheels, the aluminum wheels, are encountering. The chassis noises, springs and actuators and suspension as it's driving. And then there's that weird, really weird scraping sound. That's a rock hitting the wheel. That's the electronics. Anyway, this is very intriguing and it's going to get great play in the rest of the show tonight because it's part of our evidence for what, in fact, is really occurring on the planet Mars. And... That's all we're going to kind of say. <clears throat> okay. Um, without further ado, given that that was a kind of an intriguing build-up, let me introduce my prime guest of the morning. Ron Gerbron is a proudly uncredentialed polymath. He actually went to Stanford and Berkeley simultaneously, and that's an old interesting story, with a proudly uncredentialed and deeply interested history of the study of archaeology. Ron was raised on a farm in Pennsylvania, and began his interest collecting arrowheads as a small child, also falling into uh, underground structures that turned out to be part of the Underground Railway. He found the programmatic aspects of education too limiting after attending a famous Quaker school in Pennsylvania. Ahead of his studies and his time, he attempted to contort himself into attending those two aforementioned universities before he gave up on academia and moved overseas. In all that time, he has focused his core attention on the metrology of our paleo history, particularly on other planets, especially the planet Mars. Ron, welcome back to The Other Side.
1: Well, thank you, Richard. That was a great intro. I wonder who that guy is. <laughs> um. He's a guy wearing the yep. black
0: cowl, <clears throat> who is usually – Yes, yeah. Wow, well, wow. Well, no, you know, you you, I, you you do kind of resemble the emperor. You know that, don't you?
1: Oh, pa, Palpatine. Oh, great. Uh, thea, show him that other picture when you get a chance.
0: <laughs> <laughs> or maybe replace sent- his picture with the other picture. Okay. Um,
1: oh, no, that'd be silly.
0: <laughs> I'm not quite yeah. sure how we want to do this, because I obviously have not gone into any of the evidence yet for the thesis. So, Before we go to evidence, why don't we talk about your model, which I had the extraordinary serendipitous honor this week to have found evidence, which essentially, I think, proves the Zerbron model. So talk about what the Zerbron model is for surviving on a dying planet Mars. Uh, Excellent.
1: Excellent. Yeah, I don't know whether to name it after myself or after one of Art Bell's cats, but um, the, um, uh, the idea is that if you have some warning that your environment is going to fall apart and you're not going to be able to live there anymore, uh, you build yourself some sort of a shelter. Now, in a larger sense of, of the word, on Earth, something like that happened during the last ice age. We know this because there are various little scattered areas across the area that was subject to most of the glaciation. One in, one in uh, England, two in France, one in Germany, uh, that were ice-free for no particular reason. And the paleontologists and so forth called them refugia. And this was where the origins of humanity lived. Meaning refuge, Right.
0: Exactly. A place yeah, away from the place. ice. Protected from the ice. Right. Okay.
1: Now, hold that thought, because you've got Neanderthals in one of them. You've got what are currently called anatomically modern humans in another, and apparently uh, Homo erectus and a couple of other strains of humanity wandering around in some of the others. But the idea was these were uh, – liter- well, there's no better word than refuge. Anyway, on Mars, uh, suddenly Mars was losing its atmosphere. Now, one thing that's guaranteed to happen when that happens, we'll get into the part that Richard I know is going to argue with me about in just a moment. (laughs) Uh, The the biosphere will collapse. Now, if the biosphere will uh, collapses, then for sure you're not producing any more oxygen, not unless you're covered with oceans with a lot of active algae algae in them or something, and uh, that didn't seem to be the case. So uh, the first concern is to keep some air where you can breathe it and uh, it appears that they were still capable of the mega scale engineering that allowed them to cover an entire crater with a dome
0: now when we're talking uh, craters what what scale of craters because mars is covered with all you know from craters that are like like Argyre, which is a thousand miles across down to little things that are two feet across
1: Right. I think the two footers, uh, not so much, but
0: uh
1: <laughs> what, Gizero's uh what, fifty miles across? No no and, no twenty eight.
0: Uh, Round number twenty eight thirty miles. Yeah. Twenty eight. Okay. Uh oh it's those darn
1: kilometers again. Yep. See I don't know what, I don't know why they had refuges in France. Look at all that it ended up giving us with the metric system. Gromo, gromo, gromo. Uh the uh anyway, uh there there are some possible disputes over how that could be done, but the plain fact is anybody that's seen uh, that movie The Truman Show, that yeah. was in a gigantic that, – that was the set for that uh, supposed TV show was a a dome covering an entire city, and it was completely climate-controlled and everything else. And everything in there, aside from the scale, is completely within current technology here. Admittedly, we're not racing against this thinning atmosphere, but you see, that's an important point. Well, then I found something that uh, intrigued me when I was checking to make sure that I was up to date on the planetary physics uh, decisions about how old things were and where the rocks came from. And they make a big deal out of one simple signature that the Martian rocks that they find in meteorites and compare with samples are about 4 billion years old. Well, okay. Well, if the planet was doing fine in its earlier orientation, namely the satellite of something else, uh, some large planet that's now gone, that was uh, Dr. Tom Van Flanderen's model of the exploded planet hypothesis. hypothesis. Hold
0: hold it there. We're at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning is our own Ron Gerbrand, really kind of walking on cloud nine, because we found evidence this week that confirms his domed-in crater model for the last 40 or so thousand years of the inhabitants of Mars before they had to leave and come here. And if you notice something familiar in the background, I've often said that Mars is a kind of an areographic landscape for Lawrence of Arabia. So tonight we're going to dip in and out as we listen to The Other Side of Midnight and an historical development that is going to change our history. You are on The Other Side of Midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
2: Dr. Andrew Kaufman, natural healing consultant. Welcome to the other side of the news where they're open to hearing the truth and take it seriously. The first thing you got to look at is the methods. Like nothing else matters because that's where they describe the experiment. So then you can decide if what you can conclude from the experiment. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And that, that's really, really important because you know, they make false claims and people don't understand how to use statistics and all these things could be misleading. What I notice that they do now is they put the methods section at the very end. And in some papers, it's in a separate document that's like an addendum. So in other words, they just present the, the results and conclusions and an introduction section and nobody looks at the methods but that's the most important thing because if you don't know that you don't actually know what they did because you know there's a lot of art to experimental design and uh you know some people can be very clever about it some can be very elegant about it but there's also like a many ways that things could be fudged and there's books on this right like one of bill gates favorite books how to lie with statistics then you know you have the John Ioannidis article, which is one of the most highly cited papers where he says more than half of all published research is false, right? So, mm. but, but how many scientists, when they go to read a paper, say there's a 50% chance that this article is false, so I better read it really carefully, right? They don't do that. But all this clinical research, it's really just, it's really marketing. It, that That's what it is. It's not actual research. With this, the vaccine trials, you know, it, it's just they basically designed it exactly perfectly to show what they could say. You know, that bogus 95% effectiveness, uh, that's the, the relative risk reduction of having a test. And it's not even the overall risk reduction would be like 0.4%. But they describe it that way. It's a statistical trick where they could say ninety-five percent, and they also define the outcome. And then they had to wait seven days after the vaccine. But all the people who got sick within that seven days didn't count. You know, all hmm. kinds of uh, tricks. Why. They're 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 experts <laughs> at this. They know yeah. they know what they're doing, and and it's really hard to even figure out what they're doing.
0: Welcome back, everyone, to The Other Side of Midnight for this March 20th, the first day of spring here in the land of enchantment. We're talking about Mars tonight, endless sands and dunes. And it turns out ancient cities, some of them under domes. In fact, some of them where we are tonight on Mars where Perseverance landed under a still partially intact dome. And yes, that's an extraordinarily controversial statement. Well, we've got some equally compelling evidence to support that statement. So as Lawrence rides off into the sunset, Ron, you are back on. Why don't we pick up where we left okay. off? Okay, we're talking about building a dome over a whole crater.
1: And yeah, I, I noticed it was Gale that I was thinking of when I cited the size before. Gale is larger. Gale crater where... Yeah, curiosity
0: it's, a, it's about 100 miles, up. yeah.
1: Yeah. 96 actually. Diameter. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, but again, you got that 3.8 billion years old thing. See, that's not... The 3.84 billion years old is not the important detail because... Everything, all that, uh, all those planets, all that ground, all those rocks, everything that became meteors and asteroids, it was around already. Okay, so we know it's that old, but it's what happened after that. And in the case of Mars, uh, as far as I can tell, and i was surprised by this, uh, it wasn't as damaged as one might think by losing its parent planet. It depends in a lot of ways on how that planet died. If it disappeared because somebody dropped um, red mercury on it, like in the Star Trek movie, and basically sucked itself into a black hole, um, that would create a perturbation. But well, wait, 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 wait! You, you,
0: you're, you're ignoring Tom Van Flanders' extraordinary, copious evidence that something blew it to smithereens, ejected most of the mass uh, past the escape velocity of the sun, so it never returns. And the very long period fragments are in these huge looping orbits that reminded him of the Soviet uh, FOB system, the fractional orbital bombardment system, which is where he got the idea in the celestial mechanics. I mean, that was his expertise, a profound expert in celestial mechanics. And that's how he put together the idea that these long period comets cross the plane of the solar system indicating that they originated, if you put all those orbits back together, like a FOB's explosion in Earth orbit. And that was where he got the idea for looking at these uh, long and medium-term cometary objects that wound up with millions of years um, cycle times, orbit times, and how he reconstructed the idea that there used to be a planet, probably somewhat bigger than Earth, what they now call a super Earth, maybe two or three times the mass of the earth, which was orbited by its own retinue of satellites. And for some reason, about 66 million years ago, if that date sounds familiar, we're going to connect the dots momentarily, it blew up. And he was looking, of course, before he died, under very mysterious circumstances, for a natural cause, that there's something in the cores of planets that after a certain amount of time, hundreds of millions or billions of years, something happens and they, depending upon other factors, can literally blow up. He never was able to identify the energy source of what could do that. We, of course, have torsion field physics and the hyperdimensional model, and we know exactly how that can work. And it also can be turned into weapons so that an extraordinary super civilization in a civil war with itself or in a competing war with another super civilization could easily <clears throat> uh Dr Kildare uh blow a planet mm-hmm. up on a Thursday afternoon and the and the, the the results the effects would be identical because the the technological signature would be the same as the natural signature if planets could in fact blow up so we really well, don't Richard, have a re-
1: – go ahead. Yeah, the – uh I tend to favor uh, a model like that, but I was just laying out the options. Which one? The well, natural the, uh, or
0: the artificial?
1: Uh It actually doesn't matter which it is, although I, I tend to agree with you that it was probably um somebody – it was either misadventure or warfare. And see, I, I call that the Krypton model because Krypton – was Superman's home, they mm-hmm. said was blown up, blown up from the, just like a firework. And that would mean that the core exploded, which is what they talked about, which is why I was referencing that Star Trek movie where they tried a different attack on the same thing, attack the core and get rid of it. But in the case of most of those, at least the ones that are posited to create uh, the asteroid belt and so forth, that's currently it's not in favor to credit the whole asteroid belt to that one planet. They said things were smashing into each other with great abandon for quite a length of time when this, in the early years of the solar system. Well, wait, wait, wait. Uh, if you
0: add up the mass of the asteroid, they don't make anywhere near a planet weighing two or three times the mass of the Earth. They're a fragment of what was left. Yeah. Because remember… Well, there, some of it
1: would fly out of the orbital
0: plane. I mean, unless it's… It does. in the
1: plane It does. And,
0: you know, there are well, they're, asteroids at all different inclinations. There are comets… And then there's a residuum which is in a kind of a contained belt around the sun, the asteroid belt. Um, that's that's the lowest energy debris that didn't make it out of the plane of the orbit. Now one of right. the well, one of the effects of this, again according to Tom, was that this explosion released uh, its satellites, and there were two. One was Mars which then took up an elliptical orbit around the sun as a separate body, a separate, you know, planetary body. And the other he thinks was an ice world, an ice moon that subsequently many millions of years later, like about 3.2 million years from now, back in time, ahead of now, it blew up as kind of a long, slow burning fuse from the physics effect of whatever blew up its primary planet. And there are interesting spikes at those time frames in terms of cometary orbits and and uh, debris and all that that Tom used to reconstruct this model. So yeah, it doesn't really matter whether it was natural or a war, the result was Mars in the model was liberated to be its own planet and it had its primary literally blow up in its front yard. <clears throat> which was a very very bad hair day for mars and you and i differ somewhat nope. yeah i well
1: most of the uh, most of the destruction that they that the mainstream talks about with uh, planetesimals that's small stuff and recent uh, additions to the minor planets league like pluto they uh, wh- while they're smashing into each other and stabilizing orbits uh, it causes all sorts of damage, but when a uh, when a sizable body breaks up, it doesn't explode. See, that's the problem. It just shears apart, and if it just falls apart, basically, uh, which is what would
0: have likely happened. No, with, no, 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 uh, Mar- no, pale Mar- face. You know. It doesn't do that because otherwise you wouldn't have the material, most of it, in Van Flandern's calculated model, pushed to escape velocity. It didn't just quietly no, fall apart. It blew up.
1: Not the whole, right? The pieces that are where it's struck, where it's struck, where it, where anything is struck, it fractures, it breaks apart. Pieces are flung off. I mean, remember we have those shurgatite, so-called shurgatite meteorites that are the meteorites that originated on Mars, and a single strike of some sort went right down into. And somebody actually has a theory for this that it was, it was a crater called Mojave. And Mojave crater and blasted them out of there. I don't know how yet that they determined that they all came from the same place, but it's, uh, they say their analysis is good. We'll see. Uh, anyway, and somehow they reached escape policy just from the impact of that, just like something that strikes the earth may fling things into the No, wait, the stratus- you're talking really about
0: alive. an impact on Mars relatively yes. recently, a few million years ago, which spalled out ejecta that left Mars because they exceeded the escape velocity of Mars, orbited around the sun countless times before something entered the Earth's atmosphere and a piece of it survived. And it's picked up, I think it was picked up in the uh, Egyptian deserts as this uh, particular class of meteorite. And the reason they attach it to Mars is because the isotopic signature in this class, turgotite meteorites, is identical to the Viking Isotopic analysis of Mars' atmosphere and the surface chemistry of Mars. Correct. That, that, Correct. That, that's that connecting link. Right. Yeah. The only que-
1: the only question in my mind is the uh, whether they all came from the same crater, which currently that's the theory. A crater called Mojave is where they all uh, where they all came from at least the ones that have been recovered. Now, of course, if they recover something that they determine has the same isotopic ratios but clearly couldn't have come from there when we get a little more um, on-the-ground data from Mars, then somebody will change their mind.
0: Let's go back the to the agricultural domes, doming in craters to Yeah, survive. okay. All right. Good idea. Well, the point is that um, –
1: the simplest uh the simplest form of shelter if you have the engineering to do it would be to whip up a dome. And the thing that the reason that I'm stressing about how the planet broke up and released Mars is that they had more time to do this than might seem apparent. It's not like they said, uh, "Oh my goodness, in 3 years the planet that we're circling is going to blow up." And we're all, we're all going to die, so we better figure out how to get out of here. Uh, no, they, they had something that went a lot slower. And, in fact, the model shows, and this is from mainstream papers, not talking specifically about that, but talking about the loss of the atmosphere from Mars. And I'll tell you why it works. Uh, the, uh, they, it's somewhere around 10,000 years before it would get to the point where it is now. But all of this is posited on the atmosphere, whatever its composition. Like I said, in the mainstream, you can't say too much. They can't claim that it had an oxygen-rich atmosphere at a certain point. But even when they fudged the data, they can't fudge the math. And they had thousands of years to do this, so they had plenty of time to try and deal with it. Got somewhat uncomfortable right away. But the point about strikes is that in a dense atmosphere, a direct strike come in straight down, smash out, like you would do if you were uh, if you were aiming an asteroid at a city. Uh a very popular theory of warfare which I I hope nobody's figured out how to do yet. Uh that causes negligible effect in a thick atmosphere. Hardly any. It uh the catastrophes? Yes. But think about it hitting water. Something hits the water straight on, boom! You get ripples, you get a shock wave, which moves mostly up, somewhat to the side. But if it comes in at an oblique angle, that is the, the more of an angle, the better. Then you tear up a lot more atmosphere on the way down. The shock wave from the strike is not blocked by the actual impact itself. But think of a think of a rooster tail. That uh, you uh, develops behind a jet ski. Yeah,
0: I think we're like getting that. too deep in the everything. weeds. Let's stay big picture. All right. So you have a catastrophe. Okay, why would... You have a catastrophe. Yeah. Mars is so uh... in this model. Mars used to orbit this planet. The planet blew up. Right. Mars Correct. lost well, a lot of its atmosphere. It's orbiting the sun. To scare them. All by its well. Remember, everybody on the planet was killed. You know why? Would you like a Richter 12 planet-wide earthquake? See, I've, I've done some actual numbers on yeah. this. Nobody on Mars survived. The people who survived <clears throat> to repopulate Mars was the rest of this super civilization living in the rest of the solar system. So they came back to salvage as much of Mars as they could. And because people have an affinity for home, they repopulated Mars which now a drastically depleted atmosphere, which because it passed that tipping point, it now would go away. I I call this the Lowellian model of Mars, where the the Martian atmosphere is maybe a tenth of what the Earth's atmosphere is now. And so things like solar wind, things like uh, slow leakage, temperature in the exosphere – over time, remember, we have millions of years and it gets progressively worse and worse and worse. And at some point, depending upon whether you retain your technology or you don't, you, if you're stuck on Mars, you're going to die. And so in the interim, and I'm looking at now the last like 40,000 years, the last Martians where they turned out the lights had to come to the only place in the solar system, which was lush. Almost paradise by comparison, namely here, and that time horizon, forty thousand years, is when these astonishingly, incredibly sophisticated cave paintings suddenly appear. That's why the story about yeah. the guy off Marseille. I think they were painted by homesick Martians, and they could never go home. They had to live here. They were in that, in in some sense, invaders to the native species of Homo sapiens already here on earth. And that sets up a dichotomy, which I think we are living out to this day. But in that last 40,000 years on Mars, going back to your model, the only way there's survived with somewhat contemporary technology, because we're almost there. We're so close to being there. Look at Musk, look at some of his rather far out ideas would be to basically create air and food sources in as many of these refugees, refuges as possible, namely domed in craters. If you, can't, if you can't terraform the whole planet, if that's beyond your technical means, at least you can contain biospheres in limited-scale environments scattered around Mars. That's been your model, and now because of the landing in Jezero, and the information and data we're going to you know, impart tonight, that model yep. is well on its way, Ron, to being confirmed.
1: But we still have a contentious point about whether anybody stayed on Mars. See, I don't think that it had to be people that weren't there anymore. There's no reason why people could not have survived it. Remember, for one thing, Mars doesn't have the tectonic plates that Earth does. So it, wouldn't, it would shake. It would rumble. It would, even, it would bounce things up in the air. It would take care of
0: pretty much everything. Wait, wait, wait. You understand that, that every number in the Richter scale is 10 times more energetic than the previous one. Oh, I do. Imagine,
1: survived,
0: Im, Im, well, Im, imagine. There's been like a, three twelves. There's never been a 12 on Earth, ever, ever, ever. The largest in the
1: geologic lake, record, there's been like three of them. That's, uh, well, and, we don't know. The
0: estimates are yeah, – you know, look, let's not get mired in arguments you and I have all the time behind the scenes. Let's get on with the model, yes. okay? Okay.
1: Yeah, well, Well, it's important to the model that there be somebody there because the what really killed Mars – was the fact that because of its disruption and the uh, leaking atmosphere, which they surely would have lost some of, uh, no matter how the uh, thing uh, was destroyed, the biosphere collapsed. See, that's why you have to build the domes. That's the point I was trying to add. You have to have a place where you can grow things. And that's why uh, I think it's number two in my uh, picture section. There's a There's one of the first depictions of that. It wasn't from there, but it's from an old movie called Silent Running.
0: Ah, one of my favorite films with Bruce Dern.
1: Yeah, shows Earth's last forest drifting off to an uncertain future after everything on Earth has been destroyed.
0: Remember Huey, Louie, and Dewey? Right. (laughs) Well, tell people what Huey, Louie, and Dewey were.
1: Oh, they were the predecessors to like R2-D2 and the uh, droid and – yeah, it's uh, those big name producers all swipe stuff from other people. Um, anyway, yes, it was a pretty good movie for its day. I mean, the special, you know, the they kept it mostly indoors. <laughs> so they didn't have to compete with the space effects that we take for granted now in a TV show. Uh, but they uh, yeah, they did a good thing. They had little little maintenance robots. That, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, one of them, uh, one of them was deceased early on in the movie and uh, they, but one of them survived to accompany the la- earth's last forest on its new voyage towards a nearby star system. If it ever got there, uh, the point is that that's exactly what those zones are for to preserve things. And a nice round crater is a perfectly good place to lay down a foundation and build it. And it could be done in a remarkably short time frame if you're motivated enough, which I am quite sure they were. But if it was only people in orbiting ships and so forth without any known colonies that we can refer to, then they would have had to have some equipment, so they'd have to use the stuff that was still there while it still was. In any case, they accomplished it somehow. So you have a dome over Gisero, you have a dome over Gale, you have domes over other um, places and there's evidence that we won't get into tonight that other parts of the
0: solar okay, system. Okay, let me let really me let me just ignorant. ask a kind of a nitpicky question. Um, uh, yes. Why would you dome in a crater as opposed to building a freestanding dome on a flat piece of desert? Well, all of was because all Mars because
1: you because you need the water. The uh, one of the things that happens most of the water on Mars is uh, under the ground. They used to think it all escaped into space, but the current mainstream opinion is that it's tied up in minerals. And in other words, there's an awful lot of, them, of the minerals in the regoliths are almost 50% water in terms of what you could cook out of them. And that's where a lot of the water went. There are also these huge, like they're like veins. They're like, they're like veins in a, uh, or uh, in a body or um, the, um, Sap tracks in a tree that uh, are full of um, organic matter and they're saturated with ice.
0: And now these these now these, man- these are models, right? These are not measurements.
1: No, this is stuff that is that is said by the mainstream to exist. That a lot of the water is a few meters under the surface of Mars and it's trapped in what we'd call clathrates here.
0: So it's basically and, I mean, can- permafrost.
1: Um, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, pretty much. But these are these are localized and the uh for your Lowellian model, which I heartily endorse, the uh idea that somehow carried over that uh when he was looking through telescopes and when Chaparelli was looking through telescopes of uh, canals on Mars to carry the water was just almost an instinctive truth. It the uh the there's miles of ice at the polar caps, at least one of them. Well, it's uh, one of them's CO2; the other one is mostly water ice. And they're thinking now that the um, that the that's the North Cap that's got that that's mostly water ice, right? No, Which it's
0: a, it's the South Cap is water south. ice. The North Cap okay. is, but the South Cap also has a frost cover of frozen CO2 dry ice. But it's right. been measurements by spacecraft that shown <clears throat> in terms of density measurements that there's a tremendous amount of ice. At the South Pole, it acted as a coal trap,
1: yes, and uh, in fact, that's one that one of the things they refer to that um Korolev crater that's one of the pictures there. Mm -hmm. As I didn't give you a picture that it's easy enough to come by, one of the straight on shots from the ESA from the Mars Express, uh, but it, it literally does photograph like a um a pie, you know, it looks like like whipped cream or something on the top of it. The whole thing is frozen over. Uh, It's one big solid block of ice, they uh, they say. But if you take a look at um, the – let's see, which one is Korolev? These things always go up at the last minute. Uh, Richard, help me out here. I'm not seeing the show
0: page. I'm looking for Korolev. I don't see Korolev. Did you give it another name? No. No.
1: No. Okay. No. Don't fret folks, it's right in front of us. We're just um
0: I don't see a crater, near I don't see So well, it's the, anyway. The uh, uh what well, we have to.
1: Why is...
0: oh, a wait wait, 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 wait. Here it is. ExoMars, which is a new spacecraft. That it is a Coralive crater unenhanced and the number yeah. is uh number 11 right. in Thank your you. yes. in your listing yes, yes. yeah in the and picture section
1: yes and my access to the radios and picture sections is a little slower than all of yours cuz i'm doing this from my phone sorry. sorry but um the um down there on a yeah if you look at that i mean that's pretty good for an unenhanced image and look at that now what is that in the upper uh left, Richard, that's arcing over toward the main mass of ice there?
0: Mm, I don't know, it seems to have some kind of geometry to it. Uh yeah, all those uh well there's a lot of geometry in there. Yeah, but like I'm talking very fine long. scale. It looks like lattice uh, just at the edge of resolution. Uh, then I see right a whole bunch of other stuff that looks like ice, uh streaks of ice, very polar. A lot of very bright white stuff. Uh, And then this gauzy stuff that looks like... Break Yeah. Oh, you're right. My gosh. You're absolutely right. Okay, I'll tell you what. Hold it there. Um, Let's pick this up on the other side. I will do this and then that. Here on the other side of midnight, my guest this morning is Ron Gerbrun. We found some striking evidence in favor of his doming over craters to survive on mars model and we will get to the evidence when we return don't touch that dial thanks for listening to this exciting first hour now the second and third hour of the show is available to club 19.5 members only Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording. Have the commercials removed? And the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.